following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Ming's not unbeatable. With all his men, he couldn't even kill Flash. Gordon's alive! Welcome to Flash Gordon Minute, presenting your hosts... From Minute of Darkness and the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast, Brad. And introducing your intrepid explorer of Planet Mongo, Eric. It is minute 73 of Flash Gordon. Eric, how are you in this fine evening? Brad, I'm in no mood to mess around today. Keep that dog away from me. I've got a whip and I will use it. Yeah, yeah. If a problem comes along, you will whip it. Oh, God, there's going to be some Devo jokes today. All right, good. So, uh, another fun-filled minute and another fun-filled guest. Eric, who do we have with us again this evening? Coming back for a second day from reopening the wormhole in Marvel Star Wars Explorers, Sam Stovold. All right, fun-filled. I feel like I can live up to that a little easier than Genius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it was great having you with us yesterday, Sam. Uh, really happy to have you back. It's interesting where uh, you were not the first guest where the first time you watched it was for, uh, in anticipation of doing this podcast, uh, what's interesting is you're a Star Wars guy. You, you, you know and love your Star Wars, and it's always fun to see how Star Wars people react to Flash Gordon because uh, this came out around the same time that the original trilogy was coming out for Star Wars, and boy. it's a it's a bit different. Oh boy! Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Oh, man, that was, I think that was the biggest surprise. Um, I. I talked on a previous episode about how much this movie reminded me of Barbarella, and that just the fact that it has that whole vibe is crazy. Because, I mean, not just Star Wars, but you think a year before this, Alien came out. And yeah, and then 1977, we had Star Wars. And it just is like this, like movies at, at that point, like sci fi movies were going towards this sort of like realism like we're gonna do sci-fi but we're gonna do it realistic and uh something that struck me and that i really appreciated about this movie and that i'm sure has to be intentional was it's like no we don't care about doing realism we are doing a a beautiful throwback to like movies like uh, barbarella tv shows like doctor who like old star trek like it it's all stuff where it's cool sci-fi and like like fun sci-fi concepts but like a huge element of it is that like you have to use your imagination to sort of embellish it the rest and i think that's probably something that was so exciting about star wars when it came out is that it did the work for you it's like look at this amazing beautiful world that we've created but there is something that i love so much about jumping into something like this and it's the same way i feel watching old doctor who episodes or wherever it's like yes the world is cool but the sets, the costumes, the effects, it's all just kind of like, we're just having fun. We're doing sort of the best we can do. And you just have to like kind of get your head into it. And like so much of that is um, like the actors and how willing they are to commit. And I will say in this minute, the performances like, like Timothy Dalton, like he is so good. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a different type of sci-fi experience than Star Wars. It, it's not something where I say you can only have one or the other. To me, it's just like I am a different part of my brain is engaged when I'm watching something like this than when I'm watching Star Wars. 
And you know what else? The, a, a lot of this movie else also is very similar to the real, the original, like the first eh, 20, 30 issues of the Marvel Star Wars comic that you're covering in your podcast also. I mean, there's a lot of in the stuff set in between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and that comic that came out in the late 70s. A lot of that's really insane stuff. You know, the most famous example, of course, is the giant green rabbit who's running around. Of course, yes. Uh, but so there's a lot in that you know, three-year stretch of that comic that's very similar to this movie. Yeah, well, that's that's a fun thing that I'm always talking about, especially right now, because we are in that era of the comic where, um, what like, what Star Wars was hadn't been as defined as it was, even by the time Empire Strikes Back came out, where that sort of was like, okay, these are the rules, this is how things need to be. And before that, it was like just the first movie was sort of like, here is this gigantic sandbox, and who knows what could be in it. There could be giant green rabbits in it. And it definitely feels, at that point, a lot more like a, a Flash Gordon or something like that, um, where it's just crazy, you know, who knows what's going to happen, like, out there sci-fi stories. And that uh, that's something that I definitely love a lot about the, the point of the comics, like, between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and... Uh, as after Empire Strikes Back, it definitely gets more, more how we recognize Star Wars today, and uh, that's I feel like that's both good and bad because I like when things are like weird and out there, and obviously I love Star Wars, so I like seeing something become more Star Wars like too. But it's sort of bittersweet, if that makes any sense. Well, those those comics uh, th- that were put out by Marvel, uh, they in retrospect were insane. <laughs> um, the one thing that I, I always got a kick out of is, and, and people don't realize this, where George Lucas was making a lot of it up as we, he went along, and he wasn't sharing the information necessarily very freely with everyone. And uh, I know one thing that they've uh, I've read about the comics and I'm familiar with is, at the end of the first movie, everyone thought the love triangle was Luke, Leia, and Han. And... Hmm. In the comics, they really leaned into that. So they had, like, arcs where it was Luke and Leah, you know, trying to decide whether or not they were going to get involved and how she felt about Han and how she felt about Luke. And really, they were able to, as in comics you can, just doing a deep dive into it. And then smash cut to, uh, you know, years later. It's like, oh, yeah, they were they were brother and sisters the whole time. It's like, oh, my God, everything here is so weird. Yeah, of, of course. I mean, all of Star Wars is like that to an extent, but especially, yeah, like the world of the Marvel comics where they're spending a very sizable amount of time between each movie just sort of having to, like, tread water because, you know, they can't, like, do any huge developments because they have to sort of wait for them to find out what the movies are going to do. But in treading water, they're just like, it's like you said, like, after the first Star Wars, everybody's like, oh, yeah, like, who's she going to pick? Who's she going to end up with? And so, of course, that's, like, one of the few things where it's just like, all right, we can further explore that. That was, like, fair game in the movie. And, I mean, you know, it's, like, even after Empire Strikes Back, like, you, you still have Leia making out with Luke <laughs> just to get Han jealous and stuff like that. So it's not like they dispelled this idea of the love triangle even during Empire Strikes Back. It was, like, way, like, not until 1983 where they're finally, like, now... We're taking the easy way out. <laughs> like, <laughs> she doesn't have to. Doesn't have to pick one or the other. Everybody wins, sort of. <laughs> um, so 
yeah, it, crazy stuff and the direction they went in. The, the comics were a lot of fun because they were, had a chance to... And the Star Wars universe is a really big universe. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about now. We're, we're talking about Flash Gordon. We're on uh, minute 73. Uh, Eric, what happens? Uh, it, it, we have a big showdown. Yeah, the big disc fight begins, and it begins with Flash going to shake Baron's hand, uh, which Baron completely disses. And I want to call out what Flash does here, and I want to call what Baron does here. So Flash, you know, we we talk about, oh, you know, good-hearted, you know, naive Flash, just such a a good guy, pure down to the soul. Baron tried to set him up with the tree stump battle. He was going to shoot him in the swamp, point-blank range. He's just (laughs) been generally a dick to him this entire movie. And Flash goes to shake his hand before they're in a death duel. And then Baron not only disses him, chucks the gloves. Just this cool little, uh, I, I don't need these gloves anymore. Just tosses the gloves over the side down into the sky. And that's how we start our minute. I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> it, it's such a setup. And, you know, later we find out maybe Baron's not that bad a guy. And... Baron has been just doing everything to insult Flash and trying to kill him and can't even give him a handshake. And uh, it, it's uh, it, it's just a great little bit of business, and it makes us like Flash all the more. And we've talked about a thousand times about how in less likable hands, if you didn't have Sam Jones just being such a, you know, you just... You just like him just to look on his face is like ah that's a guy you want to you want to have a beer with and uh if anyone else was to do this they would um it, it wouldn't work nearly as much uh and especially timothy dalton's doing some good work here for anyone who watched timothy dalton's james bond movies and came came out of that not liking him and not liking what he did with the role uh, this is where you can go to uh, re- regain some uh some fondness and some respect for him because he does some really good work um, in this movie and in these minutes. But but Flash, God bless him, Sam Jones is still the guy you're rooting for. And with so many great other characters and other work being done uh, around him, that's saying something. Yeah, I mean, Sam Jones was definitely a, a, f- a fun surprise going into this movie. Um, I, I did know I was going to see some Timothy Dalton. I was excited about that. Um, but I... I I have no idea if Sam Jones has ever done anything other than this. I mean, I know he hasn't been in Love Boat, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, his like very like gee whiz artist approach to everything I think is a really great center for this movie because he's also surrounded by like all these like crazy character actors and everything that are in their own ways like taking it very seriously and. It makes it really exciting at this point to see like the these two forces have to come head to head, um, especially because, boy, do I love Timothy Dalton too. <laughs> Why are you such a big Timothy Dalton fan? Uh, well, not because of James Bond, actually. Um, ah. But that is where I first heard of him, and so I sort of had this grudge against him for a while. Um, I really need to spend more time with those two movies, though. I, I'm I was a big Bond fan as a kid, but I never liked the '80s ones, and I sort of I think it's actually what's made me appreciate Timothy Dalton over the years is that for a while I was just like, oh, I don't like Timothy Dalton. He wasn't a good Bond. And then every single thing that I've seen him in since then, I've been like, oh, my God, I love you so much. You are so great. Whether he's just being a voice actor or he had like a really fun role in like the 
the newer Doctor Who's like uh, a while ago, and uh, you know, Toy, Toy Story three. <laughs> the rocketeer and then now this movie like he's just always so dependably good like he's good as a bad guy he's good as a good guy i really like i loved him in this movie and even especially during this fight scene because since this was the first time i'd seen it um i didn't really i didn't know which way things were gonna go like i didn't know um like i was i was was thinking like what is flash gonna kill him because i don't i don't know how dark and serious (laughs) like flash gordon usually is for the most part he was enough of a bad guy that it would have been justified in Flash killing him. He he was doing enough jerky stuff, and he was toying around with Flash enough and trying to kill Flash. And also, when going back to the earlier scene where uh, they're doing the, the stupid stick your hand to the stump, and oh, and you, the kid gets stung by the scorpion, and Baron kills the kid, there's a thing that happens in movies where if, if you're going to kill someone... Especially in something like Flash Gordon, you need to give them a, either they need to be enough of a jerk where you feel justified in killing them, or they need to be so innocent that it motivates other characters. It provides a motivation. And with Baron, you know, there's there's a sort of enough uh, going with a Marvel comics. I mean, Marvel uh, movie quote. There's enough red in his ledger where it, it, <laughs> it would be justified in Flash, you know, throwing him. And it would it would have been, I could have seen the thing where Flash wins the fight, turns around, you know, to say he doesn't want to kill him, and then Baron charging at him, and Flash ducking, and him going over the side. Yeah, I, I could have sure. seen that. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, I mean, that, and it, it could have been like a audience cheer moment, even like we could have been excited about that. And yeah, I, well, not to take too much thunder away. I know that's not even in this minute or this week, but um, it, yeah, it definitely made for a it. it Talking about things that make you like Flash, uh, him, yeah, well, it's getting, getting too ahead, but yeah, the end of this fight really makes you like Flash a lot, and yeah. obviously it makes Baron like him too. The, the fight's interesting, and it's something that we've talked about before with the, the football fight, where they don't make Flash a karate expert. He's not doing a crane kick, he's not you know attacking Baron's pressure points, he's throwing a lot of haymakers. And he's fighting the way that a a quarterback who's a big, tough, country-strong guy should fight. And I I like that. I I like that they don't have the, oh, it turns out Flash is also a black belt in Aikido. Because that that, that wouldn't work for this scene. Yeah. Well, and that's, well, especially it's really cool at the beginning, too, because... I mean, you see Flash going in to shake his hand, and Baron's like, no nah way, and he throws his gloves off and everything. And then um, when Baron does go and grab for the whip, like, he is not pulling any punches. He is, like, just immediately going and, like, whipping Flash, like, in the chest and the arms. He's, like, he's in it to win it. Like, he's going for the kill. And, yeah, I mean, like, Flash <laughs> is, he's too, like, He's got too much of like this gee whiz aw shucks attitude. I feel like to 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 be there right away, and so like when he finally does get into it, and he, he's just sort of like clumsily throwing punches. I feel like it really it makes sense for his character to kind of have to stumble his way into a fight to the death, as opposed to being like immediately like a fighting superstar or something like that. Uh, one thing uh, that happens in this minute is uh, Voltan has some pretty funny business. It really struck me. 
how quickly Voltan gets bored with this fight. <laughs> <laughs> I had, I had I that exact say, thing written down. Written we, down. We've got a trifecta. We all have the same exact note. It's, it takes him less than 20 seconds. He's already bored. <laughs> he's like laughing before that too. He's like, ah, give me the remote control. He's I'm so, done with this. He's so impatient. Because <laughs> it's not like these guys are dancing around. They're not like exchanging headlocks or anything. This is like a good fight. And he's like, oh, come on. Why hasn't anyone strangled the other person with their own entrails? <laughs> give me that. And I have to call out this line because uh, specifically the line, give me the remote control. Ever since uh, my parents got our first TV when I was a kid that actually had a remote control, I am old enough that I did, in the beginning of my childhood, have TVs with no remote control. I've been saying this line my entire life ever since then, whenever I want to take over uh, control of the TV. Oh, God, that is a perfect line to have stashed and at the ready. (laughs) <laughs> for everyday life. <laughs> well, yeah, and I'm with Eric. I, I remember I was the remote control. It would be a thing where Dad was tired was, and he would just smack me on the back of the head. It's like, oh, change the channel. And then the thing where you're, oh, God, kids, it was a different time. you just <laughs> flipping through the channels, and you would go by it too fast, and it would just be quicker to, you know, you, you had the momentum going, so you would just wait until you came back around on the, the circular dials on the TV. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he he gets bored real quick. He's then uh, when we start off with him just shifting the weight of the um uh, of the, the what what are we calling this the, the 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 floaty disc that they were fighting on the 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 fight the fight disc uh, no let's what do we uh nah, that's boring not fight disc that's boring uh it's almost like a little island or something like island of death i don't know I, I, I'm, I'm, spike I'm, island spike island okay spike good thank you i was choking yeah, spike island i like that beautiful um so i don't know are you guys did you play nintendo 64 games at all i'm i have a reason for asking this <laughs> i did not i oh, uh yeah it was it's funny this is actually an interesting conversation to have this week my wife uh who was a huge nintendo fan bought the Nintendo Classic. They just came out with a new version of this, which comes with, like, 30 games, and it's, like, uh, Pac-Man and uh, Double Dragon and stuff all on this little right, device. Right. So, yeah, I, I never I never did a lot of video games. That was... Yeah. Uh, but, but Sharon, I'm sure our listeners, we have some Nintendo 64 listeners out there. Well, okay, I'll keep it brief then, but um, I just wanted to say that there is a game called Mario Party, which is just basically, it's, like, a, a series of, like... Uh, 50 multiplayer little miniature games. And um, there would be ones where it's like one person versus the other couple. And the idea of having three people, or two in this case, running around on a little island that one person is like controlling the weight of and making it move around and making spikes jut out of it is just like... My immediate thought was, oh my god, this is a Mario Party minigame. <laughs> and... <laughs> like. I've never seen one realized so effectively and successfully <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a cinematic world. So um, if there's any listeners out there that are familiar with Mario Party, hopefully they are right along with me. But um, otherwise, I can only say to you guys that I recommend Mario Party video games. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we haven't had this, seen the spikes yet, but the disc is shifting uh, to and fro. And That's right, sorry. F- Flash is... Well, no, it's all right. But Flash is having a tough time because he's getting right on the edge. His heels are off of 
off of this disc. Yeah, I, boy, I, this has always <laughs> this has always bothered me. His fighting technique there. I mean, he's got more than half his feet hanging over the edge of this thing. Is that really the best way? If that thing suddenly tilts the other way, I mean, he's going down. Yeah, well, that's Mario Party strategy 101, is you don't want to get too close to the edge there, or the guy who's controlling the island is going to throw you right off. Yeah, you got to stay in the middle. You got to stay in the middle. Yeah. Uh, Flash is, uh, yeah, he, he's not doing great in this fight so far. He's got a, he's got a couple of punches, but uh, he's obviously Baron is more comfortable with the whip. Uh, he seems to have better footing. Flash, a little too tall and lanky. And he's he's really getting to like more of a football stance. You know, spread the legs out and sort of duck down. Uh, he's not giving himself great balance. It, it's uh, gosh, I, it's it's amazing. Flash survived this fight. <laughs> well, he seems shocked too. The first time he gets hit by the whip, and he's got like the the like the whip. The whip has like ripped through his shirt and his skin, like right above his little like lightning bolt symbol on his shirt. And he's like, what? what? <laughs> and- <laughs> I like. Okay, he's like, oh, oh man, this is for real. This is this is serious business. <laughs> oh, oh, we're fighting to the death. Oh, oh. Okay. <laughs> I thought we were just gonna get in a tussle, another football fight. Yeah. Why is it anyone? Why aren't there refs breaking this up? <laughs> <laughs> so I gotta call out Dale here. She does two things in this early part of this fight uh, that really are not the greatest things to do. When one of the two people out there is your fiance, uh, <laughs> first of all, Zark, uh, uh, she says to Zarkov, "Zarkov, he's tilting it," and it's oh, okay, uh, you know, it, it's like Sigourney Weaver's character in Galaxy Quest, where you know she's just there to repeat things that you're already <laughs> seeing on the screen. It's like, yeah, we, we know that it's tilting. I, I mean, thank you, Dale, for for telling us what we just saw five seconds ago. But even but e- even worse. Okay, fine. Let, let's throw that out. That's just her be maybe being a little you know a little scared and she gets a little coolest. Here's the worst part. She screams out, "Flash, watch out!" At one point. Yes. Now, <laughs> the dude is a is a, okay. He does play for the Jets, so it's debatable if he's a professional. But he was on an NFL team. Okay. <laughs> he he he's played in front of stadiums with tens of thousands of people, and, and he's able to focus. And all right, he's a Jet. Maybe he never threw a touchdown, but he at least he's able to throw passes that maybe don't get completed. So that's just crowd noise, just sort of a generic, oh, you don't hear anything specifically here. She's screaming out, Flash, watch out. Now, don't distract him, Dale. The guy is in a fight for his death on Spike Island. If you scream, Flash, watch out, he might turn his head and look, you know, somewhere else, giving the opening to Baron to go yeah, do like- something to him. It's like, what? What are those crazy Hawkmen up to now? They're throwing right. stuff at me? <laughs> like, you know, and it makes me think of, I, I, there's a Bobcat Goldthwait stand-up special from like 30 years ago where he tells a joke where, you know, he talks about the drunken fans at a baseball game. Hit the ball! You know, and go, <laughs> oh, yes, okay, got it. Thank you. Yes, I'm going to hit the ball. Okay. You know, it's just like, just, just let him fight. Don't distract him. It'd be great if he just turned around and was like, listen, I don't need to hear it from Rich Kotite. I don't need to hear it from you. <laughs> Going way back to the 95 era of the Jets with Rich Kotite. Well, you had to go there because uh, yeah, you just enjoyed that he had been the Eagles coach and bombed as a Jets coach. Yeah. It was unfamiliar. And it's been brought up. I'm an Eagles fan. Uh, and Rich Kotite was, uh, 
one of the most reviled coach, head coaches of the Eagles. And it was pretty crazy where he completely tanked out. The Eagles were started a season like 9-1 and one or something like that, and they ended up finishing the season 9-7. and seven. They lost, just went on a terrible losing streak. He got fired, and then the owner of the Jets picked him up the, the next season. So he's like, well, we want to win right away. He's like, then why did you get Rich Kotite? And he ended up tanking it as a head coach there. So it's, uh, I will always take an opportunity to just trash Rich Kotite. <laughs> a little look into my psychology. If it's not just... on Flash Gordon Minute, then where? Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, otherwise, I have no real ill will towards the Jets. They're not a, an NFC team. It's just, you know. Not 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 the best run organization through most of their history. Uh, but hey, at least I, they had Flash Gordon. <laughs> at least they had Flash Gordon. <laughs> Which, by uh, the way, we haven't even we we've never mentioned this, but I, I just I have to state for the record, I heard in another interview that uh, in an interview that Sam Jones did with our friend Joe Stuber, a previous guest on the show, that in uh, he actually once tried out. Uh, for I'm very proud to say my NFL team, uh, the Seattle Seahawks. So, uh, too bad Sam didn't convince the producers of the movie to make him a Seahawks quarterback. Then at least uh, he, he would have been stuck being a Jets quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that would have been better. Even then, because I know it took a while for the Seahawks to true, true you know, re- really get their uh, their wings underneath them. But, hey, uh, hey. So, so that that was an update for this movie. It was him being a football player, right? Like I was I was reading a little bit about it, and that was never prior to this version of Flash Gordon. He had always he was like a polo player usually, right? Correct. Right. Yep. How do like hardcore Flash Gordon fans that have been in it since like I mean I mean who's I don't know who's been in a Flash Gordon literally since the 1930s, but I don't know like where did this movie have like a a strong negative reaction amongst uh, like flash aficionados or was it embraced? Like, I'm, I'm just curious. I, sorry if you've already been over all of this before. No, but. you know, th- that's actually probably the first time we've been asked that. And everything that the research that we've done, I've never seen any real reaction one way or the other. It, I think by 1980 flash Gordon, the comic strip was so far past its heyday. Mm hmm. Um, the original strips, the first 10 years or so were some really cool inventive stuff. And we've had some of the artwork shared with us and it's, um, really some, some very good art. And, um, you know, obviously these are characters that sort of stick with you, but it had been so long since people were excited by Flash Gordon that I think, and people don't really get I don't think people were that passionate about the comics any longer. It's like they just were something that you read in your newspaper. And in 1980, I think it was a little before like the big collector's editions would happen. I I think that was something that almost like started with Garfield of (laughs) taking a year of comics and then repackaging and selling them in bookstores. So I, I, I think it was hard to be a collector of it. You would actually literally need to cut out comics, uh, from the newspapers and you know save them which I, people did do and there had already been some very different versions of the comic there had been the serials and the cartoons and stuff and obviously this was campier than that but I, I don't think I don't think people anyone was real mad about it but I also don't think 
there was like a big groundswell of support for it, like all these Flash Gordon fans coming out of the woodwork to see it. Right. Does that sort of line up with your impression, Eric? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've never come across anything. This is really the the incredible difference between the pre-internet age and, and the, the current, you know, internet age. Is you know, nowadays when you find out a movie is going to be made based on a comic book or a comic strip, first of all, you find out about it like three years before the movie even comes out. Right. The cast, the casting is is announced. The director is announced. The the you know behind the scenes photos are leaked. There's featurettes online. By the time the movie comes out, you know the hype machine is so enormous. And then you get you know the, the Green Lantern. Yeah. Well, just that look it up. It's gonna you know just completely reject it uh, for whatever reason. I mean, look what's going on right now with Star Wars. It's out of control. Uh, so, you know, I feel like, you know, it was not only that, but it was an age. Remember in 1980 comic book fans, we had, had what the original Superman movie and that's it. So, you know, in, in the early eighties, you had the the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. You had this, um, and then it wasn't until the late eighties. We got to the first, uh, Tim Burton Batman. So it was almost, it was just such a big deal to have a movie based on a comic book or a comic strip anyway, just to have anything, it was just such a, just like, you know, who's going to complain? We're we're getting a comic book movie. Right. Yeah, Yeah. I I guess it also seems like something like a movie like this, any of its, anything that's like not, um, doesn't exactly match up with continuity. Like, I feel like, I'm not being hugely familiar with the Flash comics either, but it feels like that, at least in terms of its, I don't know, just, just it's like attitude and everything. It's very faithful to what Flash Gordon, I mean, to me, to me anyways, it seems like it's very f- faithful to like what Flash Gordon is potentially all about. And like, maybe that would be enough. Like maybe people wouldn't be saying like, Oh, like, Oh, like this is such a, you know, like this isn't how Ming would act or something like that. Like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I think all the characters were really accurate and really uh, matched up the comic strip, aside from Flash. Uh, <laughs> Flash himself was always sort of the gentleman, athlete, hero, scientist, um, and they they definitely didn't they didn't do that with the movie. However, uh, Voltan was Voltan, Ming was Ming. All the other characters really matched up real well, and also, even though Flash himself wasn't. Uh, the most accurate depiction. Uh, his relationships were very accurate, where it was always the love triangle between him, Dale, and Ara. He did become friends with um, Voltan and Baron. So much was accurate that, now granted, Flash being you know a big likable dummy was different, but <laughs> it, it's forgivable. It's, it's so You get so much else right that... And yeah, the, it, it, it's sort of what Eric alluded to. This is before people got really upset over everything, and before people even knew what was happening. It, it, you know, I, I know I've known for two years that Channing Tatum is going to be Gambit. They're nowhere close to making a Gambit movie happen. Yeah, right. I know that they've gone through three directors and that he's lined up for this role, and it, it gives you a chance to start forming opinions and theories so long before a, the movie is even close. They're, they're nowhere close to f- even filming that f- movie. Yeah. But everyone has an opinion. Yeah, that's not healthy. 
As somebody, <laughs> as somebody that's doing a Star Wars podcast, and yeah, you alluded to it before, I mean, it's uh, people coming up with their own expectations for things the way they do now is not not great. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, I mean, I, to your to your point about you know it basically being true to you know like the original Flash. I mean, I, I'm no, I I've never read the I don't read the comic strip. I don't know about it. The only stuff I know about the comic strip is the research I did for this show. And yeah, it's basically at its core. You know, in the comic strip, they land on Mongo. They come into conflict with Ming, who rules Mongo, who's an evil ruler, and they get into adventures with Baron, the head of Arborea, and then uh, Voltan, the head of the Hawkmen. And really, the only major differences from the comic strip is that, uh, and it's not, you know, as, as Brad said, there's Flash's backstory is different, but, you know, he's still kind of the same person. Uh, the only other major differences in this movie really is Kala. That's the, uh, the, the the female villain in the comic strip was actually uh, uh, a shark man who was actually uh, ruled in the undersea kingdom. Uh. And, and Clytus was invented for the movie. Clytus is not from the original strip. Oh, so, really? But, yeah, but other than that, it, it's, you know, I mean, even the look of the thing, it looks like the old comic strip, you know? So it really was very true to its comic strip origins. Eric, what, what else do we, what other notes do you have for 73? Uh, my, my only other note for, for this uh, minute is uh, the Hawk people, uh, they're screaming kill, 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 kill in the background during the fight, but their their bodies are not reacting as if they're saying kill, 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 kill. They're kind of just standing there, and so... I think this, to me, seems it's a decision made in post-production to add in the kill, kill, kill chant. It's funny. It, it, it seems weird to say that it almost doesn't seem in character with with the Hawk people, where they don't seem particularly bloodthirsty. Now, they are forcing two characters to fight to the death, but it seems like they more enjoy the fight rather than like the murder of it. Yeah. They like the sport of it more than the result of it, really. Right. Um, I mean, it's... I wonder, of course, it could be one of those things where they just like, hey, we need to to fill up the background noise or we need to hide some of this bad sound effects or something like that. It's like, ah, oh, have them all say kill, kill, kill. <laughs> uh, so much of what goes on in this movie seems to be you know, out of desperation, which, by the way, I love. I, I, I love... You know, necessity being the mother of invention um, with movies where in TV shows, um, going back to uh, Sam's show where he talks about Deep Space Nine. Uh, something about that I love about Star Trek is one of the most iconic factors in Star Trek is the, the transporters and you know basically being teleported from one area from from the ships to to the planet. Right. The reason that is. Uh, is because it was too expensive for the original Star Trek show to show them landing. Uh, so they just is like, yeah, we'll just have them teleport down. It's like, and now you can't imagine they make $150 million movies, but they still have the transporters as a big factor in that because it's it's too much Star Trek. It's too much a piece of Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I love that. Like, that is... Uh, it's what I was talking about at the beginning of this episode, actually, is um, having to sort of like make do with like what you can and that's like something i love about these the old old sci-fi like this so it, yeah it applies to star trek and i i love the way that it applies to this movie like it is so it's so fun to see like what what they do with what they have like in this movie it is it's such a treat like i i i just love all the sets all the costumes i love it all so much <laughs> <laughs> you you said you sound like me 
it's a it's a beautiful world that I want to live in. Is the world of Flash this Gordon? Is, the this is great, Brad. We've got a total convert here. This is uh, great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. It's it, it's nice to hear because uh, we've both uh, Eric and I have both loved this movie for a long time, and it's great to and it's great for fresh eyes and knowing it's like okay, it's not just because. We saw this at the right time of our life, and if you're eight or nine years old and you see Aura for the first time, you're going to love it for the rest of your life because, jeezy <laughs> Pete. Uh, but it's you know it, it's a nice reminder that this is a well done movie with a lot of charm and a lot of heart, and uh, it, it'll it'll win over new converts. So very yeah. exciting. So uh, Sam, this has been another great minute. Uh, please share. You, you have uh, two fantastic podcasts that you're associated with. Uh, share again where people, you know, what you're doing and where people can find out more. Uh, yeah, uh, Marvel Star Wars Explorers is a podcast that I do with a friend. Uh, we're talking about it a lot at the top of the show, but it's um, uh, so where we're talking about all the um, old '70s and '80s Marvel comics that were uh, released following star wars um and uh if i was going to rec- recommend a specific episode i could say you could listen to our gigantic two hour or i'm sorry two part four hour discussion about uh solo a star wars story because that was a lot of fun and if you want to hear something a little more modern then i yeah, check that out um uh, otherwise also there is reopening the wormhole which is a deep space nine podcast that I do with my brother and um yeah those are yeah, MarvelStarWarsExplorers.com and ReopeningTheWormhole.com, where you'd expect to find them. Yeah, let's give you your Deep Space Nine flash question of the day here, Sam. Uh, uh, I'm if, already so excited about these. <laughs> so if, if, if General Clytus had been on the side of the Dominion, would they have won the war with Clytus helping them out? Me, I need to ask some probing questions here. Yeah. Um, does Clytus represent any kind of military force, or is he just specifically there to provide like tactical information to the the founders? Uh, the... He he. Uh, well, he in this movie he's in charge of the secret police force, so he would bring you know the the tactical knowledge of you know running a secret police force, infiltration, spying. Uh, he also uh, oversees, uh, you know, as you saw there, the, the the guys in the football fight answer to him. So he obviously has some sort of authority over uh, a military wing as well. Um, okay, so a couple thoughts. Um, the founders, the the changelings, have an amazing talent for spying that they don't use super effectively, and I think it's because of uh, who they are. Like they don't they don't even think to be as effective at the, as they could be at undermining uh, other cultures and other militaries and governments and that type of thing. And so it would really hinge upon whether the founders were seriously willing to listen to Clytus tell them how they could most effectively um, infiltrate, like, governments and militaries and and things like that. I don't think that the founders would be willing to give them the benefit of that doubt. I think mm-hmm. the founders are a little too full of themselves. But if they could get over that and accept that a solid, like, Clyde... Well, I mean, who knows how solid he is? <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. We're going to find out in a few minutes he might not be so solid. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I really don't know what was up with that. But, <laughs> but um, if the founders 
could bring themselves to trust Clytus, I think they could have a genuine shot at it because with the founders' abilities, there's no way that they should have lost the war. I think it's their own um, sort of obtuse ideas about warfare and how they should handle everything and how they should keep um, even like their own allies at a distance that is ultimately what led them to lose. So, um, yeah, with, uh, with Clytus in the mix... It's up to the founders, but I think the, the potential is there for them to have won the Dominion War. All right, that is a well-thought-out answer. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I love talking about Deep Space Nine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Eric, so uh, where can people find out more about Flash Gordon Minute? Uh, join us on Facebook in the Flash Gordon Minute Listener's Vortex. Join us on Twitter at Flash Gordon Pod, And join us on email, Minute at gmail.com. Uh, we, uh, as always, we ask uh, for your range reviews on iTunes. It helps increase our visibility. On uh, so we can get more people in on the fun. Uh, you know, Eric, this has been another great minute. Uh, having uh, so much fun talking, uh, and again, it's sort of addressing the link and the similarities and the differences between Star Wars, Star Trek, and uh, Flash Gordon. Uh, so I'm looking forward to tomorrow, but. Uh, but I got something that's on my mind. It just won't leave my mind. Oh, a big weight on your mind. Because we keep talking about the big green rabbit, and now <laughs> all I can imagine is just Jackson the rabbit. Uh, because that is, and that is a sight that does not leave you. Nor should it. <laughs> well, you know, uh, if you're having nightmares because there's a gigantic foot in a white boot standing over your head, and you look up, and oh man, it's a anthropomorphic rabbit, and he's, he's green is it is it hulk bunny is it is it jackson is it is it some other crazy thing from the planet uh, tatooine or whatever don't worry about it flash will save every one of us attention listeners you can follow us on twitter at flash gordon pod and join the conversation on facebook in the flash gordon minute listeners vortex stay tuned for our next thrilling episode of Flash Gordon Minute.